Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank my co-workers on this uh, particular talk, colleagues from Bristol and Oxford and Central Ecology and Hydrology. So thanks to them for helping with this. Um, so impacts of drought on water quality. That's a pretty big subject, uh, mainly because we have to deal with lots of different environments. We've got uplands and lowland rivers, have to consider lakes and reservoirs. Uh, there's obviously issues to do with water quality in groundwaters. And um, more generally across catchments, there's the links between the terrestrial environment, what's happening on the land surface, if you like, and what's happening in the aquatic systems and the links between those. So um, in a way, this work's kind of building on what I've done in the past. Um, I've been involved quite a lot in water quality modelling over many years. I was involved in quite a big EU project, which was about impacts of climate change on surface water quality. And in fact, we wrote a review in the Hydrological Sciences Journal in 2009, which captures quite a bit of the kind of our early thoughts on how climate change might affect water quality. Um, but this project, the Marius project especially, is sort of moving forward beyond that, and the focus is, is on droughts. Uh, water quality variables are, are many and varied. Um, water authority, water companies and the Environment Agency are concerned about a whole range of different variables. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of them, but obviously not, not everything. I'm going to talk a little bit about dissolved oxygen, nutrients, phosphorus and nitrogen, sediments, carbon. Uh, pH and acidification is an issue. And then, of course, there's issues of metals and organics. And then finally, ecology, which, of course, is often the key, if you like, output of all the changes in flow and water quality. Uh, the poor old fish, macrophytes, phytoplankton, macroinvertebrates are all affected by flows and water quality. And they also define um, meeting legislation. So the EU legislation on the Water Framework Directive is defined very much in terms of uh, ecology, restoring ecology or protecting ecology in, in uh, aquatic environments. Um, I think it would be good to just start off by trying to explain the kind of complexities involved. Um, so here's a nice photo of the upper Kennet, um, lots of nice ranunculus, calcareous water crowfoot growing, and that's what the local people like to see. They like to see fast-flowing chalk streams, clear water, um, these flowering ranunculus during uh, early summer. Unfortunately, what it quite often ends up looking like as the summer progresses is more like this, where you get a horrible decaying mat of macrophytes um, stewing slowly in the water. Um, and that, of course, is extremely unpleasant. People don't like it. It affects fish. Um, and it's one of the, the quite a typical scene in some of our streams, particularly under low flow drought conditions, um, and, and streams are also subject to eutrophication. Um, why is it important? It's important from an aesthetic point of view, but it's important from a, an ecological point of view, not just in terms of macrophytes. So here, for example, is the dissolved oxygen over a four-month period, June to September. And you can see, first of all, dissolved oxygen oscillating up and down, and that's what happens in rivers and lakes um, and sometimes you can get very high oxygen levels in the during the day because pho photosynthesis from uh, is gen generates 
oxygen levels, high oxygen levels, and at night, the oxygen levels fall due to respiration. And unfortunately, if they fall very, very low, and here you can get down to 10% saturation, that's when fish basically can, get, can, can basically die. So you see, we're dealing with a, a system that's highly nonlinear. Uh, you've got interactions between flows, water quality, um, and ecology, and it's trying to understand those interactions that uh, one of the things that we're trying to do within Marius um, and link it into the drought. If you're trying to model oxygen, um, it sits at a sort of a web of all sorts of factors. So here's dissolved oxygen in a river. You've got reaeration processes uh, in affecting the oxygen, oxygen coming into the water. You've got the algae interacting with oxygen. You might have an oxygen sediment demand. If you've got organic material from effluents in the river, that also removes oxygen. And then you get removed, oxygen removed from <coughs> the nitrogen processes, um, nitrification in particular of ammonia to nitrate. So it's really complicated trying to pick apart all these different processes and trying, trying to model them. Often we're also dealing with situations where we've got very, very low river flows. So this is the 74 to 76 drought. Um, this was a particular period where we had uh, basically failed, uh, two, two winters of failed, water, failed rainfall and very low flows in the summer. Quite serious for London because this was, uh, this is actually data at Teddington, so just upstream um, of London and where the water abstractions are. And here's a picture of the reservoir back then um, showing how, how basically depleted the reservoirs were and also the rivers. If you look at the water quality over that period, here's uh, just one graph. This is, so there's the flow and here's what's happened to the phosphorus in the river system. And you can see as the flows decrease, you basically have less water for dilution of, of effluents, um, point sources of pollution in the river and also the diffuse runoff that's coming off the land surface. And so you see this steadily increasing concentration of phosphorus. So in any modelling exercise, we need to capture that. Uh, and you can do that by kind of mass balance. If you know what's coming into the river and you know your flow is decreasing, then you can simulate that effect. Um, well, from a water quality point of view, that's quite serious because, of course, you're moving away from the water framework directive objectives of trying to lower water quality and therefore improve the ecology. So droughts work really against um, the water framework directive. Same time, uh, post-droughts, you can also get quite a serious uh, flushing effect. And um, in Marius, although we're focusing on droughts, I think we need to consider what's happening post-droughts as well. So, for example, at the end of a dry summer, you can get a sort of a series of storms um, which can give you a sort of a post-drought flushing effect. And uh, this is a sort of a sediment effect, so you can get this kind of flush of material coming off the land surface, entering the river system, and being transported down. Um, and, of course, those sediments can carry nutrients as well. Phosphorus attaches itself to fine sediments, so you, that's when you can get a flush of phosphorus moving down the river. And here's some data from the Hampshire Avon, so here's the flow. This is fairly recent data. This was uh, two years ago, when uh, eight or 18 months ago, when there was a major, uh, very wet conditions following a, dr 
a dry spell. And you can see the big flush of um, nitrogen coming off the catchment and also phosphorus, um, basically giving this, this post-flushing effect, which of course comes down our rivers, can, can end up in the sediments, but also can get into our coastal systems and into our estuaries. Same time, we're dealing with long-term changes. So here's uh, nitrogen data going back to the 1930s for the River Thames. You can see two milligrams per litre, quite a kind of low level back in the 1930s, kind of doubled by about the 1950s, uh, 60s. Then the um, farmers started applying lots of uh, fertilisers, and uh, although most of that was taken up by the crops, it was inevitable that some proportion would end up in the river systems. Um, and in the Thames, of course, where we've kind of very much uh, a groundwater-driven system, deep aquifers, that high-nutrient water enters the aquifers and then takes many years to leach out. So we've got a kind of a long-term dynamics going on here that's affecting water quality as well. And that sort of process is also happening <coughs> in the uplands, long-term trends in water quality. So here's dissolved organic carbon in the upper seven at Plinlimon. Um, you can see this is data going back to 1983. You can see it's pretty stable for a long time, and then in the last 10, 20 years, there's been quite a big increase in dissolved organic carbon. And you might think, well, why is that important? It's important because water companies have to supply water at a high quality. If you mix chlorinated water with high DOC, you get some very nice uh, carcinogenic chemicals produced. So that means that there's an extra cost that the water companies have to pay to actually um, remove this dissolved organic carbon prior to treatment. Um, so there's a sort of a cost implication of that, very, quite a severe economic issue. Um, and there's also the question of, well, uh, so what causes these spikes? What happens during the droughts in uplands? What seems to happen is that um, over drought long periods, the carbon can actually be liberated by um, microbial action and at the end of the, the, the drought period, you get a f uh, wetting up of the soils and a flushing off of this dissolved organic carbon. So that's where you can get these very big spikes during storm events. So that's another issue that um, we need to consider as part of the droughts programme. Uh, where do we get our data from? Well, there's a lot of data around, actually. There's, uh, this is um, a map showing all of the harmonised monitoring sites um, around the UK. So they tend to be at the bottom end of river systems, um, but they're long time series records. Um, they go back to the 1970s, so they're very useful for actually investigating what ha what's happened to water quality s across the whole country. Um, they cover quite a range of, of water quality variables, nitrates, dissolved organic nit nitrogen, carbon, uh, calcium, magnesium, sodium a whole range of water quality determinants. And here's um, a figure from the Trent at Dunham, water quality time series. Um, and in the shaded areas there are where there's been drought events. So, those, so this data is very useful in actually exploring the long-term relationship between drought and water quality. And um, Gemma Coxon at Bristol is, is, invest is uh, making use of this data um, to actually investigate that. At the same time, uh, colleagues in CH, Mike Bowers, if he's here, has been doing a very detailed sampling programme along the River Thames. 
um, five or six sites, um, monitoring in very, in, in a very high quality data set really, um, a time series of water chemistry is being developed, um, they'd be monitoring a whole range of different variables um, and also in far more reservoir as well. And that's important because within the Marius project we actually do have a reservoir component uh, modelling programme being run by Alex Elliott from CH. Mike's work is very interesting because it started, it's using a new bit of technology called cytology. You can take a water sample and you can measure the different species of algae or different algal groupings. And that's the first time that you can do that without actually staring down a microscope. This, this instrument will actually directly measure um, different species of algae more or less instantaneously, which is a pretty impressive bit of technology. And so it means for the first time you can actually map how the different, kind, different groups of algae, diatoms, cyanobacteria, um, nanochlorophytes, all, all the different species, um, how they're changing through time. Um, so that might be very useful when it comes to drought because we know under drought conditions there could be real serious problems with uh, phytoplankton in rivers. Um, so here, for example, is a bloom of cyanobacteria in the River Thames at Wallingford. Um, and this sort of pulse of cyanobacteria is slowly moving down the river. Um, and, you know, it will get to the <coughs> Thames water abstraction sites down at uh, Datchet, just upstream of Teddington. Um, and may, you know, could well impose uh, problems for their water abstraction <coughs> regime and public supply. So as part of this program, we're developing, uh, we're not only investigating water quality in terms of the time series and the dynamics and understanding the underlying processes, but we've got quite a big modelling program, and that's based, based on a sort of a catchment scale, but also at a, a national scale, um, and it will fit in with the, uh, the hydrological work that's being done within Maris, the, model, the modelling programmes. In the Thames, uh, we're trying to model the whole of the River Thames system. Um, and the model that we're using, one type of model is, um, is called Inca, which is sort of a, a conceptual model that basically tries to link what's happening on the land surface with what's hap happening in the river system. So you can go from the different land uses within the, within the catchment, um, different agricultural systems, forest, urban areas, translate information from that and outputs from that into the river system and then move that down the river, accounting for other sources, point sources, for example, coming in down the river system. And the idea is that it's process-based, so we try and capture the key, the dominant mechanisms uh, operating in the soils and the streams. Um, there's always an issue of um, how complicated you make the models. We try and capture the main dynamics, dominant modes of behaviour, so we don't make the model too complex. But you're dealing with sort of chemical reactions and reaction kinetics, so inevitably you need a bit of complexity to, to make sense of the, of the, of the processes. Uh, we've set the model up for the whole of the Thames, from Cricklay down to uh, Teddington. Um, we model the flow, and this isn't a, a perfect hydrological model, it's a simplified hydrological model, but it captures the main dynamics of behaviour and we try and compare it against the observed flows and the nitrogen. And what we're trying to do is capture those kind of observations that we saw. So can we reproduce 
what happens during drought periods, this increasing uh, concentration of phosphorus due to the lack of dilution. This is sort of simulated and observed data. And it's environment agency data. Um, so we're using the routine data taken from the river, but obviously backed up by the CEH data set as well. Uh, one thing that we have done that uh, is new is um, create a new model for algal growth down the river. This is making use of uh, Mike Bauer's cytology data I mentioned before. Trying to come up with a new process-based model, fairly simple mass balance with a death term and a growth term for, for algae with different factors controlling. We know temperature affects the growth. We know phosphorus can limit the growth processes. We know sunlight, cellular radiation is a key element. Um, then there are self-shading. So the algae, as they grow, when they get to a certain density, basically self-shade. So they actually block out the light from going farther down the river system. So that's actually quite an important feature in the Thames. And then for diatoms, we know that silica is another factor that controls um, algal populations. And we can use m the cytology data to actually help us Fit the model, so here's um, fitting the model to microcystis, uh, picoalgae, to um, cyanobacteria, and to diatoms. So we're trying to capture the major processes operating in this uh, system. Alex Elliott, as I mentioned, is already is modelling reservoirs, and that's an important aspect. Um, so we know water quality changes in reservoirs. Reservoirs are fed by drought. In drought are fed by stream water, obviously, and increased heat and changes in flow regime can affect water quality. So Alex is developing that component. And he's also looking at a range of different phytoplankton and zooplankton groups within reservoirs. Uh, his earlier work shows that there's some very interesting relationships between temperature and, um, and algal populations, algal growth, and as temperatures increase you tend to bring forward earlier in the year peak algal blooms. So that could be very important from a, a kind of a water supply point of view. It might influence decisions on water abstraction, uh, which will affect the overall water resources within a catchment. And of course, we are looking at climate change. We're going to dwell on this, but uh, Benoit has mentioned the kind of climate sequences that he's going to generate. And we are hoping to make use of his drought sequences <coughs> to put them through these models so that we can actually evaluate the impact of those drought sequences and um, present the results not just as time series but as, uh, as distributions of behaviour as well. Uh, we can, we've already tried to model how climate change might affect water quality. I've already mentioned phosphorus. Um, we're seeing increasing concentration of phosphorus in the summer um, as, as droughts become more significant. Um, and, of course, that goes, that's counterproductive from a, a water framework directed point of view as well. So it's not such good news from, a, from the water quality. We're also making use of uh, some very interesting idea by Christelle Prudhomme from CH, the idea of climate-independent modelling. So, OK, we know there's, low, there's climate models. Um, what we've got here is basically 10,000 runs um, of the models. This is uh, the suspended sediment model. And here you've got the a full range of temperature and a full range of precipitation going from minus 30 to plus 40. We run 10,000 runs and then we can plot the, uh, if you like, the peak 
sediment, well, the sediment yields um, on this plot. What's interesting is that Giamba's actually done a really neat piece of work here because he's basically superimposed the UK SIP09 uh, data sets on it. So here's what UK SIP would generate, and here's the complete um, picture of climate. So it's very interesting because it means you can say, well, okay, let's imagine there was a world where uh, we've got minus 10 in terms of precipitation change in the Thames, and we want to look at temperature change of th plus 3. Well, we're, so you'd expect the sediment yields to be in that kind of area. So very interesting piece of analysis, I think. And we've, we've repeated that for, um, uh, for flows, for sediments, and for um, phosphorus. And Giamba's also uh, run it for the algal model. And here's cyanobacteria. And um, what, he's, what you can see here is, here's the gains, the UK SIP09. And you can see as you move up to higher temperatures and lower rainfalls, you start to get into this real danger area of big blooms of cyanobacteria um, affecting the water, affecting the, the river system. So very interesting way of analysing the model outputs coupled to a climate analysis. So core questions and challenges in terms of water quality and drought. Well, how understanding how droughts affect water quality ecology in UK rivers is very interesting analysis, I think, but then I'm a bit biased. Um, focus on the Thames is, is a key part of the Marius project, but we're also working with Bristol to try and um, build this up to a national scale. Um, I think we need to consider post drought flushing, controls, release, release fluxes, and make predictions of these because they might affect, uh, put constraints on water resources as well. Um, and so uh, the overall issue is how, can we, how does water quality constrain water resources? And a very interesting question how do we actually build this knowledge, uh, a modelling effort, into the water resources planning models? And then finally, how, how will land use um, change and climate change affect droughts and water quality? Thank you.